Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing with our program Foundations in Faith. Um, It's a program where we try to look into the Word of God, try to move a little deeper into the mystery that it reveals to us for for all of God's revelation to us is the revelation of a mystery, the mystery that that includes the very depth of the meaning of our own existence, the mystery of the existence of the transcendent, of the other, and uh, reminds us constantly that there is a deeper reality to the things that we perceive in our life and the things that we experience in our life than oftentimes we are of a mind to explore. And I think that when we call ourselves a religious people, and by that I, I, I don't mean that we stand on street corners, but that we are believers, and that uh, in this posture of believing, it becomes increasingly important for our experience of life to be greater than our own personal experience. This is one of the great problems of evangelization. The problem is, how do you communicate your own personal experience to another person? First of all, you do so with great difficulty, even to a person with whom you are very close, even to an intimate companion, to a husband or wife, a, a sibling, a close friend, it's, um, it's not always easy to reveal the impact and the extent of the, uh, of the experiences that we have had in our lives. How do we expect then, if we contain our faith only within the realm of our personal experiences, how do we think it possible for us to communicate that faith to other people, even to another generation. It's one of the things, I think, that became very, very difficult in the post-conciliar age, when this era of tremendous subjectivity entered into everything. Part of the criticism, of course, of, for instance, of the Baltimore Catechism, of the things that we learned um, before the Council, um, part of it was, well, it was all mental. It was all outside of ourselves. It was all kind of encountering a definition and so forth. What kind of personal meaning did it have for me? Well, when, when things kind of exploded, then the emphasis became on if it doesn't have any personal meaning for me, then it isn't important to me. And so that was the other side of the coin. And everything started to become terribly subjective. And I think that in the modern era, as we look back, we can find that even in the religious education industry, this was part of the insight, this was part of the goal, to totally personalize our our Christian faith, our Catholic faith, and to incorporate it into an affective way, into feelings and into personal experience. The result of that was, is that while some people did personally respond to how other people tried to stimulate their emotional experience, their affective experience, many people, as we see in retrospect, did not. 
and that we found that the purveyors of personal experience were incapable of communicating their own personal experience. And so we had a tremendous um, era of uh, people walking away from the faith. We're still in the midst of this kind of uh, communicative process and this kind of communicative, communicative crisis that grappling and struggling with ways to uh, communicate the faith, but we can't seem to break out of the package of only the personal experiences worth communicating. And so as we get to this point of trying to struggle with this, what happens is we are unable to communicate it at all. And so what we have is a whole generation, and maybe even moving on to two generations, that have in many ways been unable to come to terms with the faith because of the methodology of how we presented it, because of the educational theories behind it, which um, which kind of rejected the faith as an objective reality in reaction against the whole Baltimore Catechism phenomenon, but but in throwing out the bathwater, of course, in the classical phrase, they also threw out the baby, and that what was left was an was nothing, and so what we try to do then, and what each each committed religious person has to attempt to do, is to now step beyond the confines of themselves into the mystery of that which is outside of themselves, that which is beyond themselves, to step outside of themselves into the mystery of God as it is present in Revelation and as it is present in the world. And so there is, in a sense, then, a new need for us to understand our faith, not just as a receptive kind of of posture, toward our own feelings, but as an encounter with something which is other than we are. And I think that we know that within the whole human realm of experience, anyone who is totally only the consumer of relationships is someone who ends up with no relationships. That if, in fact, a person in encountering another person only emotionally uses them for what they need or absorbs for them what is useful to them and does not, in fact, respond to the other person's needs as well, we find that the relationship crumbles and breaks. And we find this kind of subjectivity and this kind of of inner focus, extreme inner focus. There's nothing wrong, of course, with, with looking inward and coming to know ourselves. But but this extreme inner focus lies at the root also of a great deal of the broken marriages and family dysfunctions and so forth, which we which we find um, in the world today. Um, we could carry that theme into more problematic areas of human experience, human existence, and human social problems. But perhaps what we want to do instead is is move toward the scriptures with a uh, with a preliminary reflection on the necessity of stepping outside of ourselves into the experience that is presented to us by the scriptures, and so therefore into an encounter with something other than ourselves. And this is kind of an important thing, because the gospel story, at least, that we want to use today is the story of the three, what we traditionally call the three wise men, the three kings, the magi, whatever we want to call it. 
And it's from the Gospel of St. Matthew. And it is the story so familiar to us all of the coming of the three wise men from the east, following the star, following the star to Bethlehem. Um, as they enter Jerusalem on their way to Bethlehem, they stop to inquire where the king is to be born, that they have been led by this star, and, uh, and finding instead consternation, well, well guarded and disguised consternation on the part of King Herod. And so they then look it up in the wise men and they say in the prophet Malachi, it says that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. And so they follow the star to Bethlehem and then the gospel says it came to rest over the place where Jesus was. And so they came in and unloaded the gifts that they had brought from their distant land, apparently from Persia, of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And Matthew says they did him homage. Other translations say they worshipped him. So here is the story then that we have. And what do we do with this story? Um, There's all sorts of skepticism about this. Um, And there's been all sorts of attempts on the parts of scholars and so forth to deconstruct, reinterpret, demythologize all of those other kinds of, of modern intellectual tools that we have in order to do away with this very troublesome and this very difficult passage from the scripture because it's not something that we have a tendency to be able to reduce to the phenomenon of our own experience. It isn't something that we can reduce either to the phenomenon of the human experience as we know it. So if we're going to deal with it, we're going to have to, first of all, admit that it's problematic for a subjective faith. On the other hand, we're going to have to step forward, step out into it, and kind of see what it's trying to say, see what it's telling us, see what the Lord is communicating to us through his inspired word. Well, first of all, we might look for a few things in this gospel story. One of them might be the tremendous similarity between the story of Jesus and the story of Moses. That what the wise men discover is a paradigm, a model of deliverance in among the Israelites, among the Hebrew people. Because Jesus, like Moses, is born under a tyrannical king. Jesus, like Moses, in a way, is born in, is put into destitute circumstances. Then, just as Pharaoh attempted to slaughter all of the Hebrew males, so too, in the story of Jesus, does Herod, the wicked king, slaughter the children, the boy, the male children of Bethlehem. And just as Moses, once the slaughter had begun, had to flee to another land, so too did Joseph and Mary have to take Jesus and flee into Egypt. So there's a parallel now between the story of the great deliverer of Israel and now the story of the child of Bethlehem. Both of their lives, in a sense, have a parallel. And so what Matthew has done, in a way, is set up a situation in which the Hebrew people can begin to understand that there seems to be kind of a model or a system whereby the deliverer of the people have come into the world 
and done so under difficult and bitter circumstances, and that in the midst of that, it should draw their attention to say, well, if this was Moses' story, now here we have that this also is Jesus' story. But there is, there is an, an outside agent in the story. And that outside agent are the three kings, or the three wise men, or the magi, or the astrologers, whatever we want to call them. And there is speculation, and there is some knowledge, that there was a vague familiarity among some of the Zoroastrian priests, who were also astrologers, of the story of the Jewish people, of the story of Palestine. Not a deep and intimate studied knowledge, but some kind of a sense that in the small provincial part of the Roman Empire, there is a peculiar sect ruled over by a king, and that there may well have been an understanding that something they looked forward to something strange and unusual. (coughs) I think here is an interesting thing. Because we don't know, you know, it's very difficult to say, well, the Zoroastrians were certainly familiar with with Hebrew writings. We don't know that at all. Nobody knows that. But what we do know is that there were sects of the Hebrew people who pulled away and went off by themselves into kind of a monastic community, a monastic setting, where they poured over especially the prophecies of Isaiah, looking for signs that they could read having to do with the coming of the deliverer of Israel, the teacher of light, the teacher of righteousness, and so forth. And in doing that, they then would find certain ones who would wander out into the desert, having imbued everything that they could of the communal nature, and these were, of course, the Essenes around around Qumran, wander out into the desert telling what they had heard, what they had learned, what they were anticipating, what they were discovering. It is not beyond the realm of probability that one of these um, Qumran hermits may well have encountered people from other places and other lands, and they may have been vaguely aware. We don't know that. Nobody knows that. The scholars can't say definitely yes, but they can't say definitely no, because there's no evidence one way or the other. But we do know that among the Hebrew people, there was this real intent desire to come to know and to understand um, something about what it was that they were anticipating, something about what it was that they were looking for. So when we find then that says that after Jesus had been born at Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod, during the reign of the wicked king, exactly as the Pharaoh who was going to kill all of the Hebrew boys who were born, some wise men came to Jerusalem from the east. And there again we find that from the east come those who are guided in some way, shape, or form by some news that they had heard and some signs that they had seen. And they asked, where is the infant king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we have come to do him homage. So that there are some kind of, what the story is saying is that there are some kind of signs and some kind of murmuring, some kind of rumors that have been picked up that something extraordinary is anticipated and expected among this peculiar small province of people on the edge of the Mediterranean. 
However, when King Herod heard this, he was greatly perturbed, and so was the whole of Jerusalem. Now, this is pretty interesting for us as well. How easy is it for us to become so incredibly comfortable with the status quo of our lives that we really don't want anything to disrupt our routine? Now, there are some adventuresome souls who love disruption to routine, but I think the majority of people are probably comfortable semi-comfortable at least, living a life they can deal with, that they have been dealing with, that is familiar to them. I think a good way to look at this is, for instance, among ourselves in our, in our religious tradition, one of the great things that we hope for, one of the great things all through Advent that uh, is talked about is this the mountain of the Lord. Isaiah the prophet is, you know, great things will happen. The lamb will lay down with the lion and the child shall put his hand in the adder's lair and will not be bitten. And all of this kind of thing, kind of looking forward to kind of a restructure of a perfect, of a perfect place to be. And that becomes associated in the Advent season, becomes associated with the coming of the Messiah. It does the same thing, of course, during the Lenten season. And yet, the second coming of the Lord, something that we are told is going to happen, should excite us. It should be something that we can't wait for, that we are anticipating. And yet, if we're going to be told how often has it happened, we, have, we are going to be told that somehow or other, this world as we know it is going to come to an end. The depth of consternation, the depth of fear, the depth of disorientation that comes when there's any indication that something like that might be real. Um, even beyond the idea of a religious um, concept of the consummation of all things in Christ, um, I think probably some of the listeners are old enough to remember the Cold War, um, the terrible fear of the nuclear attacks. We certainly have... Um, the media whipping us up with, with fear about you know pan, the latest pandemics and bird flu and swine flu and and all of these other things that are going to you know wipe out millions of people and so forth and and uh, it's no less religious hysteria than the Millerites were or that the uh, that those people who proclaimed the end of the world they're all doing the same thing. They are touching into a fundamental basic human experience of the fear of annihilation. But with faith, what we ought to understand is that the end of something is always to the beginning of something. This is the great promise of the Lord. Even though what you have will be taken away, more will be given to you. And so while we should anticipate joyfully the second coming of the Lord, I would suspect that the large majority of believers would be very uneasy if they knew that was about to happen. They would be very frightened of that. That it would be, there would be sadness and there would be all sorts of sense of impending doom and tragedy. Very much opposite. Well, when we read in the scriptures, when these three wise men come from the east and they say, where is the infant king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we have come to do him homage. 
Herod was deeply perturbed and so was the whole of Jerusalem. They had in many ways been told over and over again through the prophecies that there would be a Messiah. Now, not all Jews believe that a Messiah will come, but there has always been a root core who have believed that and who have lived their lives accordingly. And that somehow or other, with the prospect of it coming true, was unnerving, enormously unnerving, especially to the paranoid King Herod, who had killed his own sons because he was afraid they would usurp his power and his throne. And now comes one who's coming out of Revelation, out of the ages. How much more terrifying would that be? And so when, in fact, the chief priests and the scribes of the people gathered together, searched the scriptures, and said, where is the Christ, where is the Messiah to be born? And they said, at Bethlehem in Judea. For this is what the prophet wrote. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. There was Herod's worst nightmare, that out of Bethlehem would come the real leader and the real shepherd of Israel. So he called the wise men in and he said, now tell us exactly when this, when you found this out. And from there, of course, he calculated the possible age of the child. And when Joseph and Mary had taken Jesus in the night and fled from Bethlehem, and the soldiers of Herod came and slaughtered the male children of Bethlehem. And of course, their numbers are on a sliding scale from a few to thousands. But again, no one really knows. No one knows the exact population of Bethlehem at the time of the birth of the Christ. And no one knows in what way or how many of the children were actually killed by Herod. But it was such a traumatic event for the early Christian community that they remembered it and probably remembered it in a way that was very typical of the Middle Easterners. They don't use superlatives, but they exaggerate something called hyperbola. And they exaggerate something in order to stress its importance, in order to emphasize how significant it is. And so when in the early church the idea grew of hundreds, maybe even thousands of children killed, basically what it is saying is this, that this was a significant moment. This is a significant event that transpired and took place. And just like we don't know how many Hebrew male children that came out of the womb were killed by Pharaoh, so we will never know how many children in Bethlehem were killed by Herod, but sufficiently enough that it made a traumatic and lasting impression on those people who recounted the tale, who recounted the story. So what do we make of all this then? What is lying underneath all this? Is there a reason, a purpose to tell this story? And we go back, I think, you know, to the earlier church and even to some of the churches of the East, where this story of the coming of the wise men is simply a piece 
in a puzzle of manifestation and revelation. That in some of the celebrations, Christmas, Epiphany, the baptism of the Lord, and so forth, are all one feast. The feast of the manifestation of the Messiah to the nations. Certainly in the Nativity, it is the revelation of the coming of the Deliverer of Israel to the poor and to the vulnerable, to the shepherds. In the story of the Epiphany, it is the revelation to the Gentiles. And in the story of the baptism, it is the revelation to the Hebrews, to the people of Jerusalem who had come out to the Jordan to hear John preach and to see him baptize. And so Christmas, Epiphany, the baptism of the Lord are statements of the manifestation of the coming of the divine Messiah to the poor, to the Gentiles, to the Jews. And that in this this triage, uh, triage of, uh, of events, we celebrate really one event, and that is that Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, is in fact the Redeemer and the Savior, not just of Israel, but for all humanity. And that this was manifest to all the peoples of the earth in a way consistent with the prophecies of Isaiah and in a way consistent with the experience of the first century Palestinian people. When we look at it in that way, then we have to ask ourselves another question. But what does it say to us? We say three things. First of all, the shepherds went back and told what they had seen and heard. The three kings did not go back to the source of darkness and destruction, but went back another way, telling what they had found. Thirdly, in the baptism, the voice of the Father testifies, and all the people hear it, that this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And they carry that with them as Jesus begins to gather his apostles around him, his disciples around him. It is, in a way, I suppose, our invitation to evangelization. It is, in a way, our invitation to encounter this event outside of ourselves in such a way that we are able to establish a true and firm relationship with it from the depths of our hearts, in our minds, and in our feelings and affect, effective faculties of our personality. And that once we do that, we become the reflection of those events in the lives of others. And so this story becomes a foundational story for evangelization. The star of Bethlehem led the Gentiles. May the light of Christ lead the Gentiles. If all the Gentiles found when they came to Bethlehem were just a young man and a young woman and that nothing more, they would not have bothered to unload their gifts. What they found was something far greater than that. And what humanity needs to find today is something far greater than your personal experience or mine. They need to find the child of Bethlehem. They need to find the light, the word, 
the star of the earth, the one that draws all things to himself and all peoples to himself in order that they might be saved. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Then he